I interact with so many amazing Gen Z campaigners, activists, authors who are doing amazing things and want to read about politics and want to read deep dives. I think there's a lot of assumptions sometimes and it's important to really actually reach out with young audiences and say, look, what are we missing? Um, what can we do better? And you might be surprised what they might tell you. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We are the Media Focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my chat this week with our guest, Abianca McConey. She's a 22-year-old journalist who, after completing a four-year apprenticeship at the Evening Standard, has decided to go alone with her own online publication, AWOL Prints covers underreported stories from around the world, UK, US, Zimbabwe, Morocco, and India. Yeah. I felt really humble talking. She's 22 and just the focus and the, the kind of ambition here is just amazing. This is a great interview, I think. Well, I won't be listening to that because it will make me feel bad about myself. Yeah, it does. It made me feel bad. It didn't actually. It made me <laughs> It actually gave me hope for the future, to be honest. Nice. That's what people come to Media Voices for, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Should we just skip the news roundup then? <laughs> I'm sadly disappointed. Well, unfortunately, we can't skip the news roundup because this is so integral to kind of our activities over the past week. Because this, our lead story, is based on something that you actually published on the site. Uh, was it yesterday, Esther? So yeah, this actually this came from an in-publishing newsletter where James Evely did a summary of Juan Senor's keynote from last November's PPA Independent Publisher Conference. So it's not like this isn't breaking, but, but there was quite an interesting discussion <laughs> that followed from my inbox. So um, James wrote this sort of this editorial summary. And he said one of the key lessons was that um, publishers should basically be distancing themselves from social media. Okay, why? Um, because their credibility is being damaged through association with platforms on which toxic behaviour is widespread. Um, so, so he pointed to examples where advertisers like Lush have decided to come out of social media and place their ads with reputable media. Um, yeah, and he, he just basically made this argument that <laughs> it's now toxic for publishers to be on platforms because platforms are toxic. Um, so, yeah, one of our listeners got in touch to basically ask what we thought. And I do apologize, Mary, for obliterating <laughs> your inbox with my response. <laughs> No, it's good. You know, you've you took a strident stance on this, and we're discussing it because you know my knee jerk reaction is that that is not a great or particularly credible argument. Well, I, I think it's it's conflating two issues, and and I'll I'll set these two out before I let you two say anything. Um, <laughs> and I think the first issue is that actually, um, will publishers have their credibility damaged by being on social media? And the answer to that is is no, because it's not not all social media platforms have issues with toxicity. Uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram have hit headlines, but to then say, you know, people like Snapchat, Pinterest, TikTok, I know they're owned by the Chinese government, um, <laughs> to, to say to say platforms like that have have issues with toxicity that are making people leave them is not correct. Okay, but there's, there's, I mean, there's social media and the social media, isn't it? And some of these are known for being hostile environments for publishers because of the context in which their content appears. It's also really, the comparison with Lush is a really bad comparison because Lush did this whole, I mean, firstly, publishers don't have the benefit of having a store you can smell from half a mile away. <laughs> um, 
And Lush very much used the platforms as a marketing thing. And they said, actually, what we're going to do is we're not going to spend money on these platforms anymore. We're not going to advertise. We're not going to have our brand presence on. That was nothing to do with toxicity. That was that was just <laughs> almost a bit performative from them. Mm. But it's not. No. You know, if they come off it. Brands performatively pulling spend from social. No. I, I can guarantee you nobody is sitting there looking at the Wall Street Journal posting stuff on Twitter or Facebook and saying, oh, how terrible I feel. I think less of the Wall Street Journal for that. I agree with that. Yeah, totally. But actually, the, having th- having people like the Wall Street Journal or the Telegraph or the Times or or the Guardian or whatever on these platforms probably makes them better in the sense mm. that it's it's properly researched content that has gone through a journalistic process so and that's another really important point if all of those publishers suddenly were like oh actually it's toxic we're going to come off yeah what on earth would your newsfeed suddenly look like but i think you need to bring this back to the reason or or, or certainly the benefit that publishing would gain from less advertisers being on social and being with them Mm. The more you can tell the story that publishers present a premium environment, a brand safe environment, the better it is for publishers. That's a real argument here. Yeah. Surely, how much I know that you know Twitter is a, it's overpopulated by journalists. It actually serves a very limited amount of traffic to publishers. If you took away all your stuff from social at this point as a publisher, where's your discovery coming from? Well, this this is, I think, where one of the part of the problem lies is that publishers for quite a while have seen social as somewhere that they publish to or as a big traffic driver. And I, I think that, that in itself has caused problems because it puts you completely at the mercy of when Zuckerberg reprioritizes and just turns that dial down. And it's social media is hugely, hugely powerful. But I, th- I think publishers need to stop using it as as a publishing tool and instead think, right, you know, is this a marketing tool? Mm. And start putting things like ROI on it. Um, you know, start looking at it as we're not using this as a traffic driver. We are using this to, I don't know, drive subscriptions or build communities and and look at it as as ways to serve specific goals, not just, oh, we're just going to put our content on it. And then, you know, when Facebook dips and 40% of our traffic drops, we're, we're screwed. And we, we had a, Mark Alker actually from Single Track World. Um, he did respond when we published the piece. They actually had their Instagram hacked. Um, they've got over fifty. They've got fifty-seven thousand followers on there. Um, and he said he's not seen much change from it. Um, and I think that's, in terms of that's kind of what. Sorry, what in terms of what change? Well, he said that he's that, yeah. There's not been much of a traffic drop. There's not been much of a merch drop. Um, so he's kind of. He just says it's not, it's not made much difference to what's going on in the business. Oh, I see. So, so whatever damage was minimal. Yeah. Instagram's right. a weird one for that, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's never a traffic driver really anyway. It's a direct response. Your links are, yeah. are sort of a bit off. But yeah, it's, it's, I think, you know, should something like Instagram actually be to, you know, build your brand and do outreach and things? And, and how much time should you be spending on it? Oh, absolutely. This is this. It comes back to you know actually having a, a plan for this kind of stuff. You remember Mike's thing was was that deliberate distribution, diffused distribution, whatever it was, where they were basically saying, look, we are going to exist on all these social platforms, and they're all going to have parity in terms I was of thinking, the amount of time we're spending on them. I was thinking, who the hell's Mike? <laughs> Mic. Um, <laughs> but that was that was a sort of 
undifferentiated approach to social. It wasn't thinking about each one in terms of its own strengths and weaknesses. It was just existing on the, for the visibility. Whereas if, you know, you're talking about Instagram there as being something that's much more for kind of visibility than any, you know, traffic driving, that's how you need to think about these platforms because they all serve different functions for their users. Yeah. I think one yeah. of the problems with a lot of this is that the publishers' social media operations started at a point where they thought they were going to make money from this stuff in, mm. in terms of advertising revenue. Mm -hmm. So it was all about traffic. It was all about getting seen, and that was where we got the outrage stuff and the clickbait and blah, 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 blah. Which we're and still I, dealing with. I keep, well, and in a lot of places it hasn't changed. Mm. But Esther's right. There's there's different ways to use this now, and there's different objectives, and maybe in some instances that's what needs to change is how it's used, not whether it's used. Yeah, this I mean, and this is my big problem with one Senor's argument here, is that there is no you know we talk about our objection to people using the term the media as though it's one undifferentiated whole. Mm. The same is true for social media. It's not just one big monolithic entity. It's all these different platforms at once. So to say, oh, social media on mass is bad for publishers, is yeah. I think simplistic. I, I do think I mean, you've got the, to come back to the idea that he's got a job to do, and I'm <laughs> and publishers got a job to do. They want to yeah. promote the, the the and you know rightly they want to promote the publisher benefit in in you know positioning publishers as a premium environment against. I, I, social media is not particularly brand safe. But we didn't let that fly when it comes to the make Google and Facebook pay campaigns. Just nope. because it's good for publishers doesn't mean it's necessarily based on a strong foundation. Yeah, strong foundation not, argument, I, I, yeah. Um, I think this is actually illustrated really nicely in one of the uh, one of our news stories last week where um, Gannett, one of their local news properties, um, the Knoxville Sentinel, um, they actually used Facebook groups really intentionally to go and connect with people that wouldn't normally come and read the journalism. Um, and they used it to improve their journalism. So, you know, it's not all about sort of shooting in bad neighborhoods and all this stuff going on. They, they sort of actually went in and it, it's part of a, a couple of year long pr uh, digital project. And I think to, for, to turn around to publishers and just say as a blanket thing, social media is toxic. Well, actually, if that's where people are and that's where you need to go and reach them and you can do so in an intentional way that that improves your business absolutely go for it and i i think statements like this are a little bit alarming and um alarmist yeah i hope there's not sort of i hope there's not senior executives just going and like <laughs> right that's it you know all our right, social media plug, teams are going yeah <laughs> um, i don't think anyone yeah. would because they're still getting traffic from it the the reality is the traffic is still coming and it's not even the traffic, it is shouldn't it? Be, it shouldn't be about traffic. If Traffic should only be a tiny, tiny part of mm. looking at what value you're getting from it. And and it's why, you know, I know we talk about TikTok quite a lot, but if, if you're a publisher and you're looking at TikTok, what is the benefit? And if there is no value to you, don't make your staff dance around offices pointing at things. We obviously um, head across to the tick Media Voices TikTok to see, Facebook, uh, might, to see Peter doing that. I might start a TikTok just so I can do <laughs> videos of me dancing during uh, podcast recording. So, my favourite story of the week. British oh, politician, should probably say failed British politician, Nick Clegg, uh, the one that sold his soul for not quite being in power in 2010 in the UK alongside that pan-faced posh boy David Cameron, uh, 
but actually he did manage to <laughs> completely trash the reputation of the country's Liberal Party, so he will at least be remembered. He's All the news been, and views. <laughs> he's been rewarded for the three years that he spent defending the indefensible with Facebook shambolic global policy positions. He's been rewarded with the position of El Presidente for global affairs. So from this person is PM, equal with Zuckerberg from what you were saying. Well, Zuckerberg's stepping back. So well, he, he was know. like, yeah, I need, I need this position to be like equal with me and um, Cheryl. Yeah. Well, you, you say he that he's a- been rewarded for this. This is not a reward. Well, he'll see it as that. <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a curse. He is, well, in a like- way, maybe it is, but he's basically now the face of Meta's metaverse. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Uh, other metaverses are available. Did you see that? I was you that shared that actually the video of the, <laughs> the community manager <laughs> trying to just trying to control these kids. Yeah, that's just like oh, that was <laughs> it was. It's brilliant. It is not a task I would wish on my worst enemy. It used to be bad enough moderating forums when you've got these kids in VR in VR chats sprinting around breaking all the rules, virtually <laughs> poking each other chase in them. the eye. <laughs> Can I say one of the things that really surprised me about this is that it's um, it's a British person being promoted to that inner circle. Mm. A, lo- a lot of these companies have, have been very, very strong in the American leadership. And to have... <laughs> I just can't picture it. Well, if there's anything that would make you believe in the Illuminati and the fact that the lizard people are actually running di- the world. You bastard. I was just about to say, it's going to be really <laughs> weird for him in that first meeting when they all just go, <laughs> and they pull off their masks. <laughs> their, their like eyelids start nictating. What's that mean? Uh, blinking sideways. Oh, man, every like day lizards. is a skill day on the Media Voices podcast. <laughs> My news in brief seems almost normal. By <laughs> so Condé Nast has just posted its first profit in an undisclosed number of years. Um, it didn't say how much, but they have recorded nearly $2 billion in revenue last year, which is a double-digit percentage increase from 2020. Um, actually, I think that's if, – if you, I mean, obviously, they're not really given any numbers, but they did lose $120 million in 2017, so to be profitable now is quite impressive. Well, that's a good turnaround. Um, there's been a lot of cuts. Mm. Uh, Chief Executive Roger Lynch has put a huge amount of effort into streamlining the business since he took charge in 2019. But actually, the biggest change seems to have come from they used to have like individual models. So Vogue would have like Vogue US, Vogue UK, Vogue um, Vogue India, but like all, all the different um, outlets for it. Mm. And they've actually basically just just brought that into one global thing, so that all the outlets can use stories from this sort of centralized. Vogue pod. But if you read the stories, you know, Vogue, Vogue's not the, whatever example you take, the, the stories of Condé and Ast in the bad old days, the waste there mm. was just ridiculous. So to cut back, you know, we're not having cars waiting outside for editors to go to fashion shoots and crap. Um, that's part of it. But the other part is exactly the stuff you're talking about, the real operational stuff. Uh, and also the paywall implementations mm. that they made. You know, they were talking about that the membership revenues or subscriptions and rem- memberships are up fourteen percent. Well, that's yeah, big, consumer revenues are now a quarter of the the total business, and I think they're aiming to make that a third in the next couple of years. But you know, it's one of those businesses. It was a sprawling, huge business, and I think that this is just part of, of making it. A, well, we talked about right size and so many times. 
Oh, I haven't heard that word in yeah, at least six months. Those, this is one of those stories. I, th- I actually think this is a non-story because the profits grew. What? By how much? To what? When? Yeah. How come? It's just such a non-story. This week's guest is Abianka McConey, and I spoke to her about her new online publication, AWOL Prints. She's a young journalist who, after completing a four-year apprenticeship at the Evening Standard, decided to go it alone, covering underreported stories from around the world using freelancers. We spoke about her ambition for AWOL Prints, what Gen Z wants from journalism. First, we talked about her time at the Evening Standard. So before AWOL Prince, I was actually working for the Evening Standard. So I was with them for almost four years, really. But I first started off with them as a trainee reporter and then went off onto a staff role. And there, of course, I started doing breaking news and I guess the general news reporting. But after a short stint at PA, where I had about a ninth month attachment, I came back and just really rearing and ready to go when it came to like crime and investigations because uh, I guess I figured out the type of journalist I wanted to do, to be um, and then from there I started doing a bit of investigations and community affairs for the Evening Standard. So your route to this isn't necessarily one that everyone takes, you didn't go to university, you started with an apprenticeship, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, when I realised, oh, I want to be a journalist and I, you know, want to do this full time, I had originally uh, applied to go to university. I was doing my work experience here and there, trying to report for local radio stations while still in school. And I just loved it so much that part of me just felt like, what if I could just get straight into it? You know, why do I have to go through the uni route? Because I'm I'm a practical learner as well. And it wasn't until, I guess after my A-levels during that summer period where I'd been doing more work experience and, you know, writing for, um, you know, local publications. But I just started searching around the different ways to, uh, I guess, get into the industry. And that's when, of course, I came across more apprenticeships and traineeships, um, which they hadn't really spoken about at school, actually, because it was so uni-focused. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you know what, this is great. Um, I would really love to go down this route. And thankfully... I came across the evening standards opportunity and funny enough it was like on the deadline week and I was like oh my gosh I've left it till late but um, I sent over my CV because I had been doing lots of work experience beforehand and just writing for various people and then I got the gig thankfully. If you were advising someone that was considering this do you think that idea of you taking control of it and doing your own stuff like volunteering or doing stuff for local radio stations or whatever it was do you think that was what clinched it for you yes i i 100 agree i think sometimes there's this idea that you know you have to be working for the big four whether it's the bbc or getting work experience with these huge outlets and yes you know it can look great on the cv but if you're struggling to get that work experience you know, do something of your own, whether it's creating your own little magazine and getting young people to write on it or writing for your local paper. I think taking that initiative is so important because at the end of the day, this industry is so competitive. You can't wait until you get big work experience. So what was your time at the Evening Standard like? What sort of stuff did you do? 
I first of all started doing breaking news and I guess that general stuff you would do as a junior reporter but later on after constantly pestering editors um, <laughs> oh I know they thought I was annoying but um, I started working on more like community affairs stories particularly when it came to knife crime and violent crime so whether it's interviewing detectives on cases that had taken quite a while uh, whether it's five years ten years the first investigation I worked on with our investigations editor was on the uh, child victims of lockdown so we did this in-depth uh, spread basically about uh, how young people actually young domestic abuse victims are being impacted by COVID-19 right. and I guess from there I went over to do more investigations about uh, the illegal wildlife crime and the gangs running that in Southeast Asia. So then after four years you decided you're going to go out on your own and you were going to launch your AWOL prints. Yeah. What, what was the kind of spark for that? What, what decided you? So yeah I mean after almost four years I was like gotta go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I independently worked on this investigative documentary, basically, yeah. that was about girls and women being coerced into gangs here in the UK. So I worked on that, you know, with a producer friend who was also a cameraman, it's just a two-man team. What's the name of that documentary? Yeah, it's called Gang Girls. So it's literally on YouTube. And, you know, the reception we had from that documentary was just amazing. I mean, we spoke to victim survivors, former gang members, politicians. It was very solution journalism focused. And we had quite a few people, um, former victims themselves, saying, like, you know, this is a really powerful documentary. Thank you for making this. We'd love more, especially from the perspective of young reporters and just how you've done it, basically. And I think from there, I just had this itch. Like, you know what? I generally enjoyed this as well and just really digging deep and investigating um, and I guess that's where the thought of potentially starting um, a publication where it's focused on really in-depth journalism came from. So it's called AWOL Prince, explain the name to me. So random I know. <laughs> I actually thought of it a long time ago whilst I was still volunteering for other publications but my reasoning behind it, which we're just going to have to stick with, <laughs> is when you think of AWOL, A-W-O-L, it's absent without official leave, um, you know, and I was like okay but why don't I kind of twist it and change it and have, you know, create a more, I guess, unique meaning where it's like we are existing without permission and we pave our own path without needing that, I guess, validation from others. I think as a young person that was so important because quite often we care about, you know, people's thoughts and, you know, for taking this crazy route or whatnot, but actually uh, it's okay to pave your own path and be proud of it. I love that idea of not asking permission. Uh, okay, you used the young person phrase. How old are you? I am 22. If I had done it half of what you've done at the age of 22, I'd be very proud of myself. Um, your focus then is Gen Z or Gen Z, depending on how you decide to say it. What does that mean to you? How do you define that? It's really interesting because our audience is actually Gen Z and millennial, to be honest. But um, I guess young people like myself who are really interested in what is happening around the world, not just the issues, but also the positive things as well, and are just so curious. And I guess one thing shapes in a different way and more illustrative and uh, just curious young people who just want digestible content. Um, I think that's definitely the aim, in depth, but still digestible and easy to read. I think the interesting thing that I've noticed when I look at the, the pages on your site, 
there's so many in bed, either coming from Twitter or TikTok or whatever else. And it's it's this kind of, there's this sort of matrix going on of where you're getting your information from and how you put your information out there. You know, in the bad old days, it was a web page, it was a web page, but this is just so networked. You mentioned, you know, that international perspective. But I've, you know, again, on your site, there's stories from Zimbabwe, Morocco, India. Um, what, what are you trying to get at in terms of the stories that you're covering? I guess sharing the experiences and the stories of global communities, of course, including the UK and the USA, but we try to really, I guess, report on the underreported stories, or if it has been reported by mainstream media, how can we dig a bit deeper or find the angles that maybe hasn't been explored or has been explored but not much in depth? I mean, recently we had um, uh, one of our investigations last week by a reporter in Zimbabwe about stolen identities. So there's a syndicate that's basically roaming around Harare stealing IDs and selling them off. And what you find is that due to how long it takes in Zimbabwe for this, you know, the government and the bodies to give out, you know, passports and visas and so forth, some of these desperate people are turning to the syndicate to just get quick and easy visas and passports so that they can work. But what's happening now is that some people are taking these IDs, committing crimes, leaving the IDs at the crime scene. So we actually spoke to victims as well who've been put on the wanted list for something they didn't do, they've been arrested, and the police are like, well, how can you justify it when your ID is at the crime scene? Um, so yeah, those are the types of stories we're really trying to tell, unique ones and um, other very urgent ones as well, like climate change, of course, but also just stories which are quite unique in a way. Who's writing those stories? I've kind of built a freelance pool of writers um, since we first launched. So there are people that I would literally go to and say, hey guys, you know what, we have a budget for this month. Are there any stories happening um, that you think are being underreported? I mean, you talk about, or I would say, actually, I've just seen this. I think we need to really dig deep. So those writers are dotted around Zimbabwe, India, South Africa, the UK and the USA. And right. quite recently, we, uh, we are working with a writer in Namibia as well. If you had to define... Um uh, uh, the sort of typical AWOL print story, what would it be? What's the defining factor of an AWOL print story? Mm. One that speaks to the heart of the community. So it's coming out of the community, but it's also talking back to the community. I mean, you mentioned solutions journalism before. Do you, are you trying to find solutions? So what we do is, so for example, with one story we worked on about the rise of crystal meth in South Africa. So we... We do it in a package. So first one, first part of the story is the issue, how it's impacting people. And then the second part is, okay, what is actually being done to try to combat this issue? What are the organizations doing? What are the struggles they are experiencing? Still, you know, you know, story format and as a feature piece, but we're actually telling the readers that was the problem. This is how people are trying to solve it. And then the third part is, okay, but you've been trying to solve it. Why is it not working? what is the policy a bit messed up what's happening has the government got something to do with it so that's what we mean when we say solution journalism because that, i guess that's what we can do in our capacity at the moment we can't actually like launch campaigns and so forth but hopefully that's something we'll do in the long term so you mentioned the budget world how are you funding it all friends oh funding <laughs> 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 well so we've actually been around for five months and i've been bootstrapping 
ever since, which has not been easy. Um, but again, I mean, if you've got a passion for it and if you believe in what you're doing, um, you have to make that sacrifice, particularly in the initial stages. Are you looking for people to get involved with funding, either on an individual level or as angel investors or whatever? Would you would you welcome that kind of financial input? Yes, definitely. At some point, we definitely will be looking for that funding and investment. Um, at the moment, I'm going to be bootstrapping for as long as I can to ensure we set that foundation and we ensure that we are going in the direction that we want to continue long term um, and just build that community as well. I mean, one thing that I have been saying at the moment, which I know might sound a bit ludicrous, but community over revenue for the time being. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful for the type of stories we're trying to build. However, of course, you know, we will be um, looking for that investment uh, in different ways at some point at the right time. I think as long as you can survive, you know, you can, you can pay your rent and you can feed yourself and whatever. I think that idea of community over revenue is a, is a, is a strong one. It's just long term, I suppose. It's not sustainable and that's where you've got to find some other ways of doing things. Okay, so forget money. Put that to one side. What are your ambitions for, for AWOL Prince? What would you like to see happen? I would really like us to be a leading media company for in-depth storytelling. Um, and I guess we're not looking to do breaking news. We're not looking for readers to come to us and say, oh my gosh, what just happened three, three minutes ago? That's not what we're looking to do. But we want readers to come to us when they're really looking for something interesting and in-depth. Um, to have a read of or let's say they've seen some breaking news they would think oh my gosh let me go to able prints to get a bit more you know i'm sure they've done a deep dive on this and, and they've dug a bit deeper so that's what we hope for if we go back to the gen z thing how do you view i hate the phrase mainstream media but how do you view that kind of the way media is done through a gen z lens oh that's a good question well, at the end of the day, you know, Gen Z is very huge, so... What's the age group that you would define it by? Well, the age group, I, I believe, is about 9 to 25. Which is clearly ludicrous. <laughs> I know. And that's why I guess we make it clear that we focus on upper Gen Z and cross yeah. over to millennials, because our readers as well are millennials. And our content, definitely, I don't think nine-year-olds would, would be reading that. But um, yeah. I feel like sometimes mainstream media does perhaps overemphasise on certain content with the assumption that Gen Z's will want to read this. Um, yeah. So, for example, just a random example, they might overemphasize on beauty content, for example, because, of course, Gen Z women or Gen Z girls would definitely want to read just that. But that's not true. I, I love crime. I love social affairs. I love investigations. And sometimes perhaps it's not as catered towards a Gen Z like myself, if you get what I mean. So I think yeah. sometimes there's this assumption that, oh, Gen Z must like this, or it's going to be packaged in this, I wouldn't say childish, but, um, you know, way that must cater to Gen I, Z. I guess that's the point I'm getting at, is there an assumption that Gen Z doesn't have the attention span, so let's, let's do bullet points or listicles or whatever they call them these days, or let's do TikToks or whatever it is. Yeah, I do agree. And I mean, I interact with so many amazing Gen Z campaigners, activists, authors who are doing amazing things and want to read about politics and want to read deep dives. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I think there's a lot of assumptions sometimes, and it's important to really actually reach out with young audiences and say, look, what are we missing? 
um, what can we do better? And you might be surprised what they might tell you. Media defined through that kind of generational lens is really annoying, I think. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm reading pieces on your site and finding it really interesting and I'm 50 odd years old, so I, I don't think that makes a difference. I would like to see actually more collaboration between mainstream and independent media in some sort of capacity. Um, I think, you know, in some ways, both are both areas of the media are doing amazing things, but together, and that's already been proven, they could do amazing coverage and really important things. And I guess just giving the space to those publications who are more than qualified to touch on certain topics. So I think that would be amazing to see more in the future. Self almost as a resource for some mainstream publications. I know a lot of independent publications who are really reaching SATA communities and doing amazing investigations without the resources and, you know, without huge funds. So we and, you know, some of these publications could be a major resource. And I guess it's for mainstream media to also see that and uh, find a way to collaborate and um, don't have to be going head to toe all the time. In terms of coverage, um, international coverage, is that something that you'd like to expand on in terms of the countries that you're in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we definitely don't want to limit where we tell our stories because, again, these are global communities that we want to be reporting for and reporting about. And, of course, I mean, when we did start, we uh, started off with the UK and then slowly branched out USA and so forth. But as we are growing uh, slowly, but growing. Um, <clears throat> we're getting, you know, pitches from all over, as mentioned, Namibia. You know, that journalist reached out to yep. us and said, well, I've seen what you're doing. I don't see any Namibian stories. Can I be part of that? And we definitely said, sure. Um, so yeah, we're definitely looking to expand. And we have a series actually being worked on by a reporter in America at the moment, so yeah. We ask all our guests for a media recommendation for our listeners to try and you know, get some insight from the guests that the listeners can go off and follow up on. What would you recommend? Okay, I would recommend, if you haven't seen it, Shattered Glass. It's a film. Um, focused on media and journalism but it's really insightful into how creating fabricated stories as a journalist or pulling quotes that aren't true can really be detrimental to your career. The 2003 true story actually um, about a journalist that actually did that and when I read it, I, when I watched the story I was like blown away that this is happening um, and then maybe a podcast, The Founders Journal by The Morning Brew. Oh, I've never heard of that film. Oh, it's amazing. It's crazy because as a journalist, <laughs> I'm like, I would be scared to do that. But he literally fabricated so many stories. They just weren't true. Don't forget that we do have a daily newsletter. It goes out every working day of the week and contains the four most important stories from the day. We curate that every single evening for you so it's as up-to-date as we can possibly make it. You can sign up to that by going to voices.media. While you're there, why not head across to voices.media slash support so you can kick us a couple of quid to keep our operation running smoothly. Is it running smoothly? <laughs> it's, it's bumping along, but they don't need to know that. And uh, for any publishers with podcasts, we have released tickets to the Publisher Ooh. Podcast Awards. Uh, we are doing an in-person event, which we're really, really excited about. Um, bow, bow, we're bow, back bow. at Proud Cabaret City in April. Um, it's going to be actual people and dancing and drinks and food and awards. Yeah, most um, importantly of all. <laughs> we'll try and recreate that photo of the three of us just dancing on the podium. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to be there with us, um, we would love, love, love to see you. Um, publisherpodcastawards.com slash tickets is where you'll find tickets. 
even if you're not shortlisted and you just want to come and party with some podcasting people do come along uh, yeah we will see you there but until we're back again next week when I will hopefully be past my cold and <laughs> Esther will be out of self-isolation some level of normality returns thank you for listening tune in again next week goodbye <laughs>